Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got Confronting Capitalism with Philip Kotler. Real Solutions for Troubled Economic System. Philip, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to speak to you, Bob, because I'm uh, very much involved in this uh, question of how well capitalism is is performing for all of us. And it's the best system possible. It absolutely is, but I think it can be improved. Well, you know, that's a really interesting uh, thought because there's a lot of debate right now. What is capitalism? So I think to start the show, how do you define capitalism in its pure essence? I think it's uh, an economic system based on on three ideas. One is uh, what we call economic freedom, Uh, In a capitalistic society, people can start a business, run it um, freely, uh, and believes in a free market, and and so on. So there's economic freedom. Secondly, uh, there is uh, the rule of law. Uh, So when there are disputes or problems like that, you um, you have a body of law that uh, helps resolve conflict. And um, the the third is, uh, I guess, the pursuit of profits and own, and private property. Private property is a third big idea that people have a right to uh, accumulate private property and uh, there are laws about um, how that can be used. Mm. So uh, the interesting thing, Bob, is that uh, we think the whole world is capitalistic now. I mean, it's like capitalism won. Uh, there's uh, French capitalism, Swedish capitalism, Chinese capitalism. Uh, and so you're right in saying, uh, how do you define it? Because there's so many versions of it. But the main thing is, is that the pursuit of profits is okay. And, and some people have a lot of capital, some have no capital to start with, and that causes uh, some problems. Hmm. In fact, I wish everyone was a capitalist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone, hopefully, in a, in a good society, everyone ha- has some stock. They have some they own some property, they own a home, they own something that, that is fungible. Uh, but, uh, and by the way, there are companies now, mutual uh, holding companies and, and company cooperatives that, uh, where the employees are, are not just um, wage labor, but uh, people who also have a, an in- interest in the business. You know, it's, it's fascinating because you're so right. There are so many different types of capitalism out there. Um, you know, the one in China is a little on the bizarre side because it, you've got so much over-support by the government. I mean, I remember when the days I was in Asia and I'd get calls from people and say, yeah, we're, we're starting an ice cream factory and uh, we're really excited. The government's just given us 85% funding that we never have to pay back. <laughs> I was like, right, well, right. how nice. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, that was the start of capitalism in most countries where uh, many, uh, where the country, the government needed to figure out what industries they can um, be good at so they could export uh, things to other countries and by that means pay for the things they want to import. So uh, the government often had a hand in uh, starting businesses. We, uh, in the United States, uh, the government was not involved. What we have is a pretty entrepreneurial group of people. Uh, and they had the freedom to start um, businesses. Uh, so the government uh, help, as a, as a matter of fact, is not looked on as a kind of a good thing. 
But I will tell you, in Japan, Japan actually, through its government, defined what industries Japan should really build and then put the money out to help electronics, uh, cameras, motorcycles, and so on. So each country has a different view of how to play the capitalism game. Also, you know, you, you kind of look at, at something like Japan, and, and that's, that's a country and society that really feels very harmonic when it's a group effort where uh, everybody's kind of involved in, in making the decision and uh, the government basically, as the figurehead for all those decisions, say, well, you know, this is the way that we should go. And then everybody goes, great, let's do it. Compared to the United States, which is, like you say, much more freewheeling, and you get entrepreneurs saying, you know what, I want to do it this way, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. It's much more, uh, almost like a creative way of going for it, just more gutsy and uh challenging, uh, I would think. So I'm curious, because we're more into a global capitalistic state now, do you have, as you know, as a business owner or, or an entrepreneur that's interested in building into the capitalist system, do you have to uh, approach it differently than you did 20 or 30 years ago? You know, um, a little bit more uh, paperwork. I'm talking to people about uh, dealing with their bank and I remember someone wanting to open a trust account for, and and there's so much more paper and and so on. I guess they're they're the government wants to be sure that people aren't laundering money, and uh, so you see the the best thing would be if it would be pretty easy to start a business. It was at one time. Now it, it you almost need a consultant to help you start it right. You know to. Mm. Uh, raise the money and to <clears throat> fill out the forms and get the licenses that are ne- necessary and so on. And that is not a good thing. I, I wish we, we could uh, ease the ability of people to start businesses. Hmm. Hey, do you think now also that when people start businesses, they, they have a, a slightly different approach to it where it's like, oh, I'm going to start a business, I'm going to grow it, and then I'm going to sell it, and that's how I'm going to make my money, compared to... Uh, many, many years ago where people, well, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to get my family involved and I'm going to grow it and I'm, it's going to be part of the family for generations. Do you think there's a, there's a completely different way of looking at businesses now? Um, yes, I do. Uh, there are entrepreneurs who are called serial entrepreneurs, mm. uh, like serial murderers, I guess. <laughs> but the point is that they, they really want to have the challenge and the fun of starting something and then make a lot of money by selling it, and then not, not stop and retire, by the way. These guys would die in retirement. They want to start the next business. There's a guy named Howard Tolman in Chicago who's on his seventh business, and that's good, too, because they usually, when he sells them, uh, most of them survive in the hands of people who paid money, good money, to, to, to run them afterwards. So, but I think most entrepreneurs, if they hit on a good business idea, um, they're going to stay with it and uh, make it their family business. Mm. Uh, Certainly in the restaurant business and in businesses like that, uh, if they create one successful restaurant, they're going to clone it. They're not going to go into another type of business. Yeah, that's true. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there's different types of, of uh, entrepreneurs and, and 
also if you have a ex- uh, pre-existing organization, uh, a lot of times you're bringing in a new CEO because the organization is going into a different um different stage of its existence right a lot of times it's it's now you've built it up and now you've got to kind of run it by the numbers and it's how can you make it very very efficient if you're in an economic downturn you bring in a different ceo to uh basically streamline and and cut it down and make it smaller more effective and then in in times of economic growth you should have a ceo who's way more entrepreneurial and tries to grow the company as quickly as possible do you think that uh, the way it's structured now, that's a, a good way of approaching? Uh, yes. I, I, I think the capability uh, needed to make a business continue to be successful uh, changes with the business cycle. It changes with the uh, size of the company and so on. Uh, you, normally, you see uh, a father starting a business. Okay. And then uh, his son went and got an MBA. And the son will be run through the business, all of its aspects, to prepare to take it over from the father. Now, the real question is, will the father let go? (laughs) And many sons I've met, or daughters, by the way, are frustrated because the father uh, doesn't have the digital ability. And remember, we're in a digital age now, nor the MBA background. And there's some fights that occur, and I always say go to uh, Northwestern University. They have a wonderful family program uh, for fathers and children to talk these issues over and hear from the experts. So um, in any case, at some point, uh, someone running the business will realize that he has no longer the the requisites for running it successfully. Now, he can do two things. He could still run it and surround himself with uh, a vice president, the right vice presidents, and then maybe one of them will take over. Or he could sort of retire uh, and put in the hands of someone else who's uh, really up to it. Uh, I'm working with a firm now that has identified in a particular big company those people who are very capable of handling the position they, they run and those people who are running positions but not quite capable of doing it. Uh, and, the, and the company president is going to look at those who are, have reached their level of incompetence so that they should be replaced or put in another part of the organization where they have the competence. Mm. Well, you know, there there was a book we talked about um, about two years ago, and uh, it was called "From Boss to From Bud to Boss," and it was the psychological shift that a person has to make when he grows within an organization. Where one day, or well, basically on Friday, he goes uh, home, and when on Monday he comes back and he's the boss because that was the the changeover period, and all his buddies are now. Um, he's above them, and it's a different way that you have to look at those people. And a lot of people, that's where you get a failing in organization, where somebody is brought up through uh, to an organization because he's really good at doing it, and then suddenly he's put in a manager position, and he's miserable, and it fails. So he has two choices. One is, should he now act like a boss and not let everyone treat him as just uh, the guy he was when he was a friend? Or should he be very friendly and, and not even change and be tentative about asking people to do things? What a dilemma. Mm-hmm. Each one is plagued with uh, risk. 
yeah, it, it, it's it's a fascinating situation. If you're lucky enough that you're in in, or, in an organization where you're happy and you're doing your thing, you've got also got to understand that the people that are advancing you are advancing you because if they don't advance you, they're unable to advance. And I, I remember reading a great uh, business book, and they say if you're going to hire somebody or bring somebody in your team, make sure that they're better at doing uh, your job than you are because that's the only way you're going to be able to advance. Sometimes when you see a person uh, running a business who's surrounded by so many helpers and so on, you realize he uh, he's smart enough to know he doesn't have all that it takes to run that company, and he's put in some people to help with the skills that he doesn't have. But frankly, if you had the right person there, he would have fewer people uh, around him. But in any case, I have a theory that um, if you're going to run a firm, uh, you would make everyone a uh, a, a self-manager. Uh, you'd be hardly any bosses, uh, but everyone will know exactly what they're managing and responsible for it. Uh, it's like an orchestra. You don't. The conductor doesn't have to tell each player uh, what the score is. Uh, each player has been given a pretty clear score of uh, key performance. Uh, indicators, you know, KPIs and everything else, uh, and and then and so there's a lot of self-management in a in a great business. I, I a lot of people complain about supervisors and so on uh, who are interfering with them getting their work done and so on, but um, each business has a different uh, ethos. Yeah, and I think you know you you look at something like that and. It, it's almost like you're running businesses within a business, and, and some people call them profit centers. But I think even within those profit centers, you have to have a microcosm per department where you have a leader in that department. He has his key team, and they try as hard as possible to outperform everybody else in the organization. If you have a, a, a an organization full of micro teams like that, you have a pretty powerful device. You do, but let me tell you an interesting story. Uh, with Pepsi-Cola, at least it was told to me by some people who went there from our university. Um, they would ask us as faculty, who are the most competitive MBA students? Because they, they wanted to hire competitors. And so uh, we sometimes would suggest to them certain people. And they've been hiring those people. They, but they've gone too far because I was told that they compete with each other. They don't cooperate at all. They're so competitive. They, they can't work together on as, as, as teams. So maybe they overdid it. Maybe Coca-Cola is looking for something else, you know, in their uh, makeup. It is fascinating because when you're running an organization, I think 99% of the capability for that organization to be competitive is to have the right people on the bus. And that's, that's a old, business acronym right now, but really, that's what it's all about. And it's not only getting the right people on the bus, but it's getting them in the right seats. And then you drive the bus. And too many people will be running a business and be driving along, and there's a bunch of people that they should have on the bus. They're not even on the bus. Right, right. Well put. That's a problem. I uh, want to bring in this idea that most companies in the past were run for efficiency and maximization of the owners, income, and profits. Uh, and when, if you have a public company, it's maximized uh, shareholder value. Uh, you know, that's been changing a bit uh, toward 
it's a stakeholder concept that a company probably could make even more money if they treated everyone who is cooperating and working together, that's employees, suppliers, distributors, uh, uh, jobbers, and all that. They're, that's the team that makes a company really work well. And the second thought is pay them very well. Get, get the best you can. Don't, don't go on the cheap. The old companies wanted efficiency, which meant to pay the least to your workers, pay the least to your suppliers, and so on. Uh, that would give some quality, but not great quality. So the stakeholder view now, I'm a very firm advocate of, um, of, of, of drawing the best resources you can and rewarding them accordingly. Now, that's where there's been failure, and my book points that out a lot. Um, here's productivity in the United States growing at a nice rate over a long period of time, and the returns to different people who made up that productivity have not been the best results. Uh, the 1%, and we know that we have a thing called a growing gap of income between uh, the, the rich and the middle class and the poor. And most of the productivity gain has gone to CEOs, uh, people running uh, uh, those special private equity firms and, and hedge funds firms. And I don't think that the employees have been sufficiently rewarded for their contribution. And in fact, that's what's lying at this problem of raising the minimum wage. Here is a country like ours, which has a great economic machine, produces so many goods and services, sitting in shopping centers and stores that are half empty because people aren't buying the Levi jeans and so on, not because there nobody, everyone has Levi jeans, they don't need any more, they don't need any more shirts. No, because there's a lot of people who want to buy. But at $7.45 an hour, you can't, you can't pay your rent even. So here's the movement. Now the country wants to go to um, $10.10. There's another group, the Democratic Party is pressing for $12 an hour. Uh, in Seattle, they're paying $15 an hour. And that's all a recognition of a major point made by one of our great uh, past capitalist heroes, Henry Ford. Henry Ford said, how am I going to sell my, car my cars if I pay the workers just $2.45 an hour? And he raises, over time, his own workers, paying them $5 an hour, not $2 and something, so they can buy Fords. So how, did, how come we forgot that principle? How come American business decided to give all the money to a few people uh, and expect the others to get the jeans and the shirts by going into debt? So what's this credit card about? The credit card allows w uh, employees to buy more than their salaries would permit them to buy. And then we have all of these terrible problems of high debt that people have. Well, you know, it is it is a very interesting dilemma because you know we the United States and and many of the the, the developed the first world countries have a shrinking middle class. And back in the day, middle class was you worked hard, you could buy a house, you could basically take care of your family, you had job security, all these great things that enabled you to 
when you worked hard, you got satisfaction out of working hard, but you also got an opportunity to relax when you came home and enjoy the luxuries that you worked hard for. These days, that's not uh, that's not a feasible thing. You've got a mother and a father that have to work just to barely survive, and you worry about your children. So you get no mental downtime. You get no satisfaction, and I think that's one of the problems that that uh, we have with this capitalism is this shrinking middle class, and more and more people that are, are basically surviving at a uh, an income level that is barely survivable and then the people that are in the poor category they're really in trouble i mean they are actually starving they're actually on the street they're having to uh beg borrow and steal just to survive and in countries like united states and other countries in europe and in canada it's a tragedy that we have a a poor class that's basically starving to death yeah, absolutely. For rich countries, that's such a sin. Uh, here's the thing. We are going to look for solutions. And my book uh, on confronting capitalism covers 14 areas of problems. And for each one, what are some of the uh, solutions proposed? Now, the, the point that you're, uh, some people will say, let's go back to the kind of society we had before. Well, that was factory-based. That's where really the money was made. Today, factories are automated. And ultimately, there will be one person running a factory with a lot of machines and one dog. And the dog's only there to wake him up in case he didn't watch the dials. So automation is uh, gonna, we, we can't go back to the way it was. Um, and, and those factory jobs paid well, and, and the unions were strong and made sure that there were health benefits uh, and safety benefits. Now we don't even have much of a union movement. We don't have factories that are the old type uh, because we are digitalizing everyone's life. Basically, even lawyers are being digitalized out of jobs, and soon some doctors will be. And so it's a whole new world, and we've got to have new solutions to this problem of can we create enough well-paying jobs for enough people to have a strong middle class. I want to talk a little bit about how to how to tackle your book because there is so much amazing information and insight into it. Do you think it's a book that uh, I could just open up and jump to a section that that speaks to me, or should I read it from cover to cover? Um, Both are possible. For example, you may be a person who uh, thinks there's a real uh, climate change problem in the the world, and uh, the planet is going to be at more and more at risk. Oceans won't produce the kind of fish we want because they'll be poisoned in some ways. Forests will be overcut down, and then the, without rainforests, we're going to have more thunder and lightning and all that. Go to Chapter 6. It's all there. It, it brings you very up-to-date on the latest we understand about protecting the planet. However, you may be a person who says, poverty in the United States is at 15% today. Worse than that, if world poverty it affects 5 billion people out of the 7 billion people on the earth today. 5 billion are really, really poor. Go to chapter 1. So, uh, yes, you could find 
14 areas of interest and go to anyone. I think you'll be a transformed person if you read it over time, all of those chapters. Now, I'll tell you, you might say, what's my hope? My hope is that one of the political parties, that or both of them read the book, but the Democrats are much more aligned with the, my positions. I'm putting it the wrong way. I'm more aligned with their positions. And remember, they have two groups. They have the regular Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton type, and then they even have the progressive ones uh, like uh, Elizabeth Warren. I think if their party workers would get a copy of the book, they would be armed with so much information when they meet others who don't know what, who don't have a position on X, Y, or Z. Uh, that's one of my hopes that the book gives you a way to think not only about the economic system, but about the political system as well. Otherwise, I want to see a lot of, a lot, you know how poor our education is in this country with respect to understanding economics itself? I mean, I don't know. In high schools, I think they used, they were, when I was there, I would take a course in economics. I don't know if those courses are offered. Certainly, they don't even get a course on finance, so they don't know how to borrow money and, and use it well. So uh, I would want to see the book used by economic teachers in community colleges who say, I'm not going to use a, a textbook that talks about demand and supply and its macro and big things. I want to talk about problems in capitalism. And if they went through the 14 chapters, they would know as much economics uh, in, a, in an interesting way as you get from certainly a textbook. Well, you know, that's fascinating because you bring up a couple of very, very salient points. One is the educational system that I think as companies and the economy has evolved and we've moved into this very, very modern, um, advanced uh, look at the, the way we do things in business, the educational system is basically exactly what it was like 20, 30, 40 years ago. They may have... Uh, upped the type of information that they're feeding the students and the students have more to learn. But really, a lot of the stuff they're teaching in the school has no relevance to what you're going to be experiencing in life. And it's almost like uh, it's a 12-year babysitting service. Yes, yes. It, 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 per, per, it perpetuates adolescence. Even college, even college perpetuates uh, adolescent attitudes, you know. Uh, in Europe, they're much more serious. First of all, they get a much better education. They get a classical education. They they are good at what we call STEM, uh, science, uh, math, uh, technology. They're, they're up to date. Okay, we're not doing that job. Our public education is very bad, very bad. They don't come out knowing math and science and uh, even uh, English well. So, uh, that's going to be that's going to haunt us. That's why we're happy for immigrants. We love immigrants. Uh, give me some people from uh, Japan, China, uh, India, and they are so aware. And I think what's made our country great is that it's a country of immigrants. We grew up that way. You started that way. So I, I'm, I've also tackled that problem of what do we do with the illegal immigrants. And, and, I, and of course, I think we've got to give them a path to citizenship, keep more from coming illegally. Of course, stop the illegals coming. But now that they've been here and they've got fathers and sons and grandsons now, 
I think we got to give them a path. And they're good people, most of them, and they start businesses uh, in their communities and so on. Hmm. Well, you know, it, it, one of the things, too, that... that um I'm aware of is that we may be bringing in a lot of immigrants to uh, come here and, and do specific jobs, but a lot of those people that come in that are highly educated, like doctors, don't get to become a doctor, and they basically say, oh, well, you're not qualified as a doctor, so you have to start again. And so there's a certain type of immigrant that's brought in. Uh but what happens, too, is they'll be in the system and then they'll have children. The children gets educated in the United States. And then they say, well, you know what? We've been here 30 years. We're going to go back to our country now and take all that knowledge and all the money that we have. And we're gone. And now we're back in India. We're back in China. And when I was in Thailand, it was uh, repatriation. And when my wife uh, had her first baby, we went and uh, went to this very, very good hospital, like better than any hospital that I've been here in North America, uh, state of the art. And the, the, um, the, the doctor that we dealt with was from the College of Surgeons. He'd been in Boston. He'd worked for 45 years in Boston, as in, and he was heavily involved with that community. And he specialized in natural birth and cesarean. And he had all these specific special techniques that he'd learned through his 40 years experience that was now only available if you knew this guy in Thailand not available yeah. in Chicago anymore. Right, so right. It, it, it's, it's, it's working and it's not working. So I think it goes all the way back to what you mentioned where we're not rewarding the right people in the right way that they say, you know, we've had a great life here in the States, but guess what? I've got a better life somewhere else and I'm gone. And you'll never, ever get those people back. I mean, they're gone forever. So then, you, well, here's what ha here's what happened, Bob. Uh, we had uh, originally, uh, a, we did a brain brain drain on the other countries. They were losing their brains. Uh, the the best people came here, and many of them stayed here. Uh, then those countries started to get uh, uh, going again, a takeoff stage. Uh, as a matter of fact, one where they would reward. And, and pay handsomely to their some doctors to come back and some others to come engineers to come back. So if they're strong on their old culture, I understand that, and it's just gonna. Yes, we could pay even more. Well, we may lose some because we just don't uh, treat them right. Uh, they're in certain neighborhoods of their own, and they've never been assimilated, and and they miss the old country, right? Uh, so we got to do a, a better job of attracting the right people and keeping the right people uh, and so on. Mm. Well, definitely a reverse brain, brain drain. I remember reading about that several years ago and was really shocked because I had no idea that existed. And I think it goes back to uh, in North America, we're really unaware of the reality of the rest of the world. Canada's a little bit better, but the States has this horrific inability to understand that there's this world that is very, very educated. It's very powerful. It's doing amazing stuff. And it's like you guys are in this uh, denial. It's like, well, now there's nothing out of the States. The States, this is where it's at. Everybody's going to come here. Everybody wants to be here. Yeah, that may yeah. be the case the last 50 years, but it's less and less and less and less. And if the whole economy is based on we're bringing these people in and we're going to uh, brain drain and that's how we're going to do better, in the long run, if that disappears, then it, 
it's a big problem. You know, a lot of our uh, people who uh, go who join big multinationals, um, they're likely to be different than the others you're describing because they are going to be put in Thailand and they're going to be put in other places and they're beginning to see a bigger picture. Even those who traveled as uh, soldiers uh, who got to places they didn't choose to go to got some sense of, of the rest of the world. Uh, that happens. And... Um, Maybe we have to start teaching uh, uh, geography better and some other courses in our public schools because now with the internet, it's a, it's wonderful what we could, uh, what videos we could show students as they grow up. To we should say to a student, choose a country and get to know it so well, and then make a presentation to the rest of the class about Thailand, let's say. So um, everything's there for us to do a better job. I think so too. With the book, should be looking at capitalism in a completely different way, or should we just understand it in a fundamentally different way? We have to go back to Adam Smith, and he wanted people to be productive, and he came up with the answer, well, if one person makes the pinhead, someone makes this, someone makes this, if he had sort of like it led to of course assembly lines and all that that but full of people who specialized and they did certain things well. Uh, and then it it was very good for supply thinking. In other words, what we call supply capitalism. It, it helped us produce so much good supply. Now, um, he also wrote a book called Mar Moral Sentiments. Adam Smith also said he favored enlightened capitalism, not raw cowboy capitalism, not uh, where you, 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 you actually are are bloodthirsty and you're going to pay the least and you're going to grab what you can and all that. He said moral sentiments should guide the the, the, uh, the business you run and so on. And, and that has been forgotten by those who are um, what we call crony capitalists and uh, cowboy capitalists and so on. You remember that there's been a big argument between two types of economists, the uh, Friedman economists. Milton Friedman was for free markets, no, not much to stop, in his book, Freedom to Choose. And um, then along came the Keynesians, um, who believed in John Maynard Keynes, and at least for a recession, you don't solve a recession by uh, austerity, where people really suffer through and their wages go down, 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 they lose their jobs. You, you, you need someone to spend the money to keep things going. So the government is the only one with, that could print money. So you have what we call stimulus spending. And that produced the Keynesian thought. Uh, and you still have that battle going on. Uh, should we have completely free uh, capitalism or should it be capitalism with, with some regulations so that the food system produces good food and there's safety in the factory. And, and going even further, should capitalists, should companies be socially responsible? Should they uh, not be creating a lot of smoke and burning coal and, and do whatever they want uh, and dumping maybe chemicals in the water system, the ocean? So I'm for a kind of capitalism that is socially responsible, sustainable capitalism, sustainable. And uh, 
we know, for example, uh, Starbucks is one is a company I, am, I admire greatly. I mean, I think Howard Schultz, not just because it's a good coffee and so on, but everything he does is conscious about being the kind of CEO that creates real value for other people. He pays his uh, staff, his young employees, uh, more money. He gives them a chance to go to college. He, he helps the villages that grow the coffee to be real good communities of, of healthy people. So we've got a lot of companies. I, I would say the, the company uh, that is run by uh, Lego and the company run by, um, uh, what's the one that Tony Hashia runs, I forget, uh, the, the shoe company. There's a lot of great entrepreneurs uh, who've created companies that want, they, they put people first, planet second, Profits third. So they, their formula is very different than the old capitalists. And I think that the, my book is all about um, socially responsible capitalism, but not too much to snuff it out. I mean, we don't want to kill creativity. And there's a, some validity to the charge that some regulations are some companies are over-regulated and it's killing their spark and so on. I know, and we should go after that. But, um, but I think that uh, the two parties, the two political parties, is, Bob, what it's going to come down to. Because you can't, have, can't make progress if one party uh, says, uh, we better abolish uh, Social Security and Medicaid uh, and we don't need an environmental protection agency and, and the minimum, we, we shouldn't even have minimum wage laws. Uh, let companies pay whatever they want and we should have a flat tax for the, uh, for the, uh, the taxpayers so they all pay just 20%. Well, that, the rich would love that. That's another party. That's called the Republican Party or it's a at least a part of it, and how do you, how do Democrats talk to Republicans when the Democrats believe in Social Security and Medicare and improving the lives of people? You know, when you realize that many of the people who work at McDonald's are themselves are on food stamps. They're on, themselves on food stamps. In other words, why isn't McDonald's paying enough so they won't be getting food stamps? So we're, we have to face this. Uh, the, here, here's the way I see it. The biggest problem is that the income distribution is growing too much in favor of one group, and that causes two other problems. It, it causes um, the fact that we can't sell the goods we make. I mean, people don't, aren't paid enough to buy uh, what we're, we're making. And, it, and, and uh, oh, there's another problem or two, but you understand, I, I see that as a core problem, and that's my chapter two, and anyone who reads it will probably agree mostly with me that we have to do something. Should we just have a progressive income tax system? Well, I happen to favor it, but you don't have to believe in that. Let's do this. Let's close the tax loopholes. Let's um, pay uh, just higher wages. Uh, let's put a, a little tax on financial transactions where all this, every, uh, people are buying and selling stock, but we're not taxing that. We tax everything else. So there's a lot of ways to sort of make things a little better without any extreme measures. Mm. Well, it, it's, um, it's the altruism. It's the ability to make a lot of money and then 
do it in a way that helps everybody. And the world is made up of all sorts of different type of people. There are incredibly greedy people that are self-centered, don't really give a damn about anybody, even their children and their family. Uh, they're just in it for themselves. And that's a fundamental problem. If you have people like that that are in power or own very, very large organizations or third or fourth generation, very wealthy, yes, you can be rich, but you have to be rich in a way that's also enriching other people's lives. Responsibly rich, well put. Uh, by the way, and we owe credit to this idea to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who made it a point to approach 134 billionaires already, asking them to do a giving pledge, which is to state what, how much you're going to give away to good causes by when. And if you go on the Internet to the words giving pledge, you will see 134 boxes. You can click on anyone like Ted Turner's box, and you'll know what Ted Turner's going to do. And Bill and Warren are even are even looking for more billionaires who might commit. So there are good billionaires, yes. And then there's another movement that is less well-known, but it's called Patriotic Millionaires, I guess it's mm. called. These guys want to be taxed more. They're saying, we are being undertaxed in terms of the problems the country is facing. We want to pay more taxes. Now, I would put a little condition in that. You don't want to just pay more taxes and let it go to building more battleships we don't want. The Navy doesn't even want more battleships. Mm. I would say those people should be taxed. If they're willing to be taxed more, and I'd be one, that money, I, I want a fund established for improving education or improving health or both and i want that money to that extra tax money to go to those improvements mm. well I, I think you hit a nail on the head it, is the united states has been at war for the last 200 almost 300 years uh and people say, no, we haven't so well actually you have you've only not been at war for 70 years out of the last 300 years so um it's very hard to say well you know we're not, we're not going to build more battleships we're not going to make we can't the United States can't afford to not be at war because their whole economy is based on creating bullets and they have to use those bullets because if they don't use the bullets then the guys that make the bullets were gonna go bankrupt but but don't go into a trap of saying we actually create the wars in order to sell our bullets uh, but it is true we are de decided to tell all the other countries they don't have to make these things we'll make them and we'll defend them uh, and and by the way, that the, the the downside of that is those countries therefore don't have have to spend money on that, and they can build up their infrastructure and their product lines. And we are building a product line that is to be destroyed, basically, and therefore prevent us from having the means of building and competing on other grounds. It's it's, it's a, and every state in the nation has uh, one or more factories making uh, defense. Uh, materials. Uh, so every senator is going to make sure that uh, we don't cut the budget. Uh, and I think you put your finger on a, a real tough problem we're facing, that uh, we, we need wars somewhere taking, uh, that take place somewhere. And I think, you know, what would be fascinating is if you were able to start a movement, but basically say you change the concept of war. It's not war uh, to, vent, to defend borders. It's war against poverty. Exactly. 
yeah. Yeah, and you go into a country that's struggling with food or has a, a like an earthquake crisis, and then suddenly there's this whole massive machine that turns on and just basically mobilizes and goes and helps restructure and save people's lives and bring water supplies. All the people that worked in that organization would love their life and love their job. It's like the Peace Corps on steroids. And you wouldn't have trouble with getting people to join it, whereas now, it, you know, in the United States, they can't get soldiers to join because they know they're going to go and they're going to die and they don't actually believe in why they're going there. So it's, it's a big, big social uh, and psychological problem that they've got to deal with. So maybe that's a solution. I mean, that's what's wonderful about books like this. Your book is it's full of great ideas but it really it's to start debate it's just to get people talking about it because when people talk better ideas come out of it and if you feel that you own an idea you'll fight for it way more than something that you were told to study and learn and believe in yeah i i'd be very happy if the book is read by even those who don't agree with my points uh, because uh what you said so eloquently is uh, we need to all be debating those issues and, and seeing what makes sense because we're not going anywhere fast and and we some problems are very real and hurting a lot of people uh, so the thing is i'm trying to get uh, the book in the hands of uh, the, the two political parties and also educators who are teaching economics um, and uh, it was wonderful of you to put me on your great show to have this discussion, uh, and I may hope to be able to be on other shows where I can express what I've been trying to say in the book. So thank you so much for uh, very great questions, and you're, you're just on top of things. <laughs> well, I mean, before we go, what is one thing that a business person can do today to help the world, help the economy, and in the long run, help themselves? All right. Aside from reading my book <laughs> and other books that, uh, that will open their eyes to a lot of our problems and a lot of our potential solutions, I think that they should talk to their friends you know, sometimes the topic of economics is taboo. Uh, you, you've got this great war. You've got Fox Radio taking everything from a certain point of view that they look at. Then you have MSNBC with its commentators who take a different view. I, I think that listening to both sides makes a lot of sense. Now, remember that we are now finding that election periods are not a part of the year they are continuous this is a whole new change electioneering uh, started the moment uh, the last election was finished and so I I don't know if this is uh, we're gonna end up tuning out to the talk about what the candidates are for the who they are for the Republican Party and the Democrat. we may get bored stiff by all that news or it may have a good effect where we're going to get into debating and reading about what other people believe. I, I don't know, Bob. We've been chatting with Philip Kotler, Confronting Capitalism, Real Solutions for a Troubled Economic System. Amazing stuff, amazing debate. Do you have a, a dot .com or a blog that people can go to? Yes, pkotler.org uh, seems to work. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Great talking to you. 
Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.